0: The Weigelcast is part of the hashtag pressing program, presented by GE. Welcome to another episode of Slate's interview podcast, The Weigelcast. I'm Slate's political reporter, Dave Weigel, and it was a pleasure to sit down with this week's guest, Rick Perlstein. He's a best selling journalist and historian who spent many years and thousands of pages telling the story of right wing politics in America. In his newest book, The Invisible Bridge, Perlstein covers the four short but consequential years between the end of the Vietnam War and Ronald Reagan's near-miss primary challenge against President Gerald Ford. I've always liked how Perlstein quotes contemporary journalists in his narrative, people who were there but missed the ground shifting beneath them. So I started by asking about that. Thank you for giving me some time today. My pleasure. So in this book, in your third book, as you have before, you give some time to... Journalists who got the stories wrong in retrospect. It's kind of my favorite plot line. It's a little cheap, isn't it? <laughs> it's interesting. It makes me kind of rethink the way I talk to people or I That's cover good. an event. That's good. Uh, hopefully, not that I get it right, right all the time, but it does serve a purpose. But how ha- how did you come along to that as a, as a storytelling strategy of finding the contemporary accounts of history and? finding the people who just missed completely the the conservative swelling underneath them?
1: Well, first of all, it's not hard to find.
0: Uh,
1: And in fact, you only have to look to the day before yesterday to
0: see the same story
1: being told over and over and over again, that conservatism is some kind of phenomenon that's kind of on its last legs and whatever uh, whatever it is, whether it's uh, Goldwater losing his landslide in 1964 or Barack Obama winning a resounding re-election somehow the machine of conservatism is always uh, dying and uh, you can even kind of go back to the enlightenment where kind of religion was seen as this epiphenomenon that was going to be replaced by scientific rationality. So there's a point to telling this story over and over again and that's that it's almost kind of built into the structure of kind of this rationalist liberalism that uh, conservatism, um, somehow isn't kind of real or permanent. And that's one of the important stories I'm trying to tell in these books that, uh, especially in American life, conservatism is just kind of baked into the cake of who we are as a nation, that uh, the struggle between kind of progress and reaction uh, is uh, really the story of America, and it's not going to go away.
0: I should back up a bit. This is your third epic history, very chronological history of mm-hmm. A time in American politics. And they've they've been stacked one on the other. You wrote mm-hmm. in 2000 about Barry Goldwater and the rise of, of, would we call that the new right? What would we call the movement? You know, of the not world? really. The, the new yeah. right was kind of a specific 70s, formation right. of the 1970s. Uh, call,
1: call it the modern right. Certainly they do. Uh, mm-hmm. It was, you know, kind of the right that came about after the New Deal, when the right was supposed to have been vanquished by kind of the mainstream of the Republican Party embracing uh, the New Deal in the 1950s. So that- covered my first book, Before the Storm, 1958 to 1964, uh, my second book, Nixonland, goes from sixty five to seventy two, and this one starts uh, in nineteen seventy three and ends with Ronald Reagan almost taking the Republican nomination from Gerald Ford in nineteen seventy
0: six. When you set out to write it, how did, how much history did you think you were going to cover in this volume? Was it <laughs> was it always going to end with the? Yes, I pulled a Robert Caro. Everyone everyone <laughs> asked
1: me that, and it's true. I actually was intending to go to nineteen eighty, but I kind of ran out of pages. You know, the the, the story of America kind of. Witnessing its latest loss of innocence with Watergate just turned out to be so riveting. No historian had ever really told the story of what it felt like for ordinary citizens to flip on the TV day after day after day and watch White House officials sounding like mafia dons. Uh, and I really wanted to capture um, what that felt like. I mean Barack Obama in uh, Dreams from My Father writes about you know taking his first trip to the mainland from Hawaii with his grandparents and driving across the country and them settling in at a Howard Johnson's every night and watching the rerun of the Watergate hearings uh, on PBS. So this was just a really big deal and a really dramatic story and a really shaping one for uh, the politics of the period. So uh, once I got to a certain point, and I realized that I wasn't going to be able to get to 1980, I began to think of a freestanding story that I did in uh, 1976, and really kind of concludes uh, symbolically with the 1976 bicentennial.
0: We'll get back to my interview with Rick Perlstein in a moment after a quick word from our sponsor. The Weichelcast Cast is part of the Hashtag #Pressing program presented by GE. Hashtag Pressing is working with some of the country's best news organizations to bring you thoughtful discussions of policy, not heated arguments about politics. I'd like to thank GE for making the program possible. And now back to my talk with Rick Perlstein. In in Nixonland, in the second of, of this series, the way you referred to the framing of the book is it made perfect sense in 1964 to vote That's for right. LBJ, and it made perfect sense to vote in the same margins against yeah. George McGovern in 1972, and throughout this book, there are references. I think contemporary range references often by Ronald Reagan to the mandate of 1972. Can you get into how conservatives reacted to Watergate? Because mm. it, there was there was a lot of rallying around the present, I think there is was, forgotten yeah. and led sometimes by Ronald
1: Reagan. Yes, I would say to kind of continue that theme. Uh, this book is about the people in 1976 who probably didn't vote at all because you mm-hmm. know politicians seem so dishonest, the system seems so crooked, and this wave of kind of disgust and apathy was kind of roiling across the land. And a big part of what um, Ronald Reagan was building his appeal on in a way that wasn't quite understood at the time – in fact, pundits were saying that because he was acting this way, he probably didn't have a chance of having a political future – was he was saying that Watergate didn't matter. He was saying that it changed nothing, uh, that America was still the great nation it always was, and um, he was dividing the world into good guys and bad guys. And for him, Richard Nixon was one of the good guys. Spiro Agnew was one of the good guys. So he uh, kept on dismissing it, uh, either saying he didn't want to talk about it because it wasn't important, or uh, in one of his most famous lines that kind of people have forgotten now, but it was a very big deal in 1973, said that the Watergate burglars were not quote unquote Criminals at heart, and the mood of the nation, the mood of the pundits was um, read very much at the time to have been. Um, people were ready for this thoroughgoing um, reevaluation of what kind of America uh, we were
0: becoming. So was this inevitable? Was the the nothing in history is inevitable, comrade? <laughs> I, the way I guess as you as you're looking at this, do you see opportunities that progressives and liberals missed? in challenging this kind of this orthodoxy of how you talk about America uh, mm. the idea once you get to once you get past the church committee once you get past the way it's kind of remembered i think in popular history among conservatives is that america had lost its way thanks mm-hmm. to democrats cutting off funding for the war thanks to jimmy but carter but that was bipartisan by the way and yeah. Barry goldwater was one of the people who supported that so that's just a right wing lie well that's what i mean how did that, did you look <laughs> when you when you're going through all these archives and going through Ronald reagan's audio commentaries do you see p- points where Liberals missed opportunities to change the way the country talked about this, or was this
1: I don't think that it was a inevitable.
0: missed opportunity
1: that liberals were beginning to look hard at the wages of the national security state and things like the Vietnam War. The opportunity they missed came in a different direction when you see the class of Congress people that were elected in one thousand nine hundred and seventy four uh, who were Democrats and were kind of picking up uh, on the failure of the Republican party. you know the Congress that was impaneled in one thousand nine hundred and seventy five was over two to one democratic. The opportunity they missed was uh, they what they didn 't see coming was. The growing waves of inequality and corporate dominance in America, and they made an almost kind of deliberate retreat from the New Deal tradition into a more kind of lifestyle oriented liberalism and I quote Gary Hart uh, you know dismissing people who take the New Deal seriously as Eleanor Roosevelt Democrats, you know um, you know Hubert Humphrey, who was really the only guy who was saying, Look." Uh, we're going to have inequality in this country like you haven't seen kind of dismissed as this kind of old-fashioned kind of labor Democrat of the sort that has to be uh, superseded if the Democrats are going to kind of take control of the country. So that's the missed opportunity. It's that kind of tradition of muscular uh, economic populism that you can really see uh, happening right in the middle of the 1970s and kind of picking up through uh, Jimmy
0: Carter and then, of course, through the D- the DLC and, and Bill Clinton and even through Barack Obama. And why did that happen? Because there's the piece you wrote separate from the book, you wrote about Al Fromm's memoirs mm-hmm. and his history of the DLC. And he keeps sort of revising who was and who wasn't a DLC candidate. Right. You know, it's forgotten that Walter Mondale's uh, Ronald Reagan so and I will both raise your taxes. He won't say it. I will. That was deficit scolding. That was yeah. what the centrists always always say that we should run on if the right can take over the Republican Party and and define what it stands for, seemingly every two years, they can can win, why why isn't the left able to do that? Why isn't the left able to to do that?
1: Well, the right is kind of pulling their oars in concert with some very powerful forces in American life and the left is insurgent against powerful forces in American life. So what you see in the Democratic Party is um, the kind of labor tradition, the kind of populist tradition being superseded by in the 70s and 80s figures like Tony Coelho, you know, who said he was going to basically make the Democratic Party kind of safe for K Street and lobbyists, uh, and then Al Fromm, who, you know, funded the DLC uh, with things like tobacco money and oil money. So, you know, to, to the extent that the Democratic Party cannot claim this tradition and kind of squandered this tradition, it's because, uh, you know, they kind of gave up at the, the the New Deal coalition, which was kind of seen as this very progressive
0: thing at the time. And just... When we look back, uh, whoever is writing the history of this right-wing era in t- 30 years, they're going to look back at 2009, say Democrats punted on car check and they punted on opportunities to use the disruption of the of the oh, fin- yeah. of the crisis to 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 lessen inequality. they have got to say, all right, well, that was another moment when they lost.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: A, I mean, okay. if you look at you know uh, Barack Obama saying he really admires. Uh,
1: Ronald Reagan's ability to kind of seize the reins of kind of the narrative of, Amer- of America and what it was about, Ronald Reagan at every turn said, look, America appears to be really screwed up, but it's not. And to the extent it's screwed up, it's the liberals fault. What Barack Obama didn't do in 2009, because it was very contrary to his nature, was say, yes, the country seems like it's really screwed up, but it's only screwed up to the extent that these people uh, uh, who've taken over the Republican Party, have screwed it up. It was a kind of drawing of battle lines that uh, is foreign to today's uh, Democrats, or at least a lot of today's Democrats. I mean, certainly there are exceptions like Elizabeth Warren. But look at how well she does whenever she shows up in a town for a candidate. The coffers for that candidate, you know, break the bank.
0: Mm-hmm. And I'll I'll let, I'll let it go there. I mean, you you have to get to an airport and everything, so... Unless Ronald no Reagan National airport. airport Oh wait <laughs>
1: <laughs> Alright brother
0: uh, Well thanks for talking to me about it Yes,
1: Thank you for having me
0: And that's it for WeigelCast this week Thanks to our producer Alexis Diao To Slate's senior producer Mike Volo, And to the executive producer of Slate's podcast Andy Bowers If you liked what you heard Please leave us a kind review on iTunes And listen to another one of Slate's podcasts I'm Dave Weigel and I'll see you next week